turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today I'm looking forward to a long conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest novel is out, The Kremlin Conspiracy. Now he's shifted his focus away from the Mideast to Russia, as the name would uh, imply. We'll talk with him about that. And as is typically the case, the book really reflects what's going on in the world right now, although it is a work of fiction. It certainly is uh, based on current events. He'll be joining us in the five o'clock hour. Well, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence said today that it found no evidence of collusion, coordination or conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Russians as its uh, Russian investigation starts to come to a close. Representative Mike Conway, a Republican out of Texas, who has led the committee's bipartisan investigation into Russian meddling and potential collusion with the Trump campaign associates during the 2016 presidential election, announced today that the panel had completed a more than 150 page draft report with its initial findings and recommendations. We have found no evidence of collusion. Now, he says no evidence. In an interview, he said, uh, you know, was there collusion? We found no evidence making a distinction. Coordination or conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Russians, the committee said in a statement, we have found no evidence of collusion, coordination or uh, conspiracy. Well, the report also noted that based on its investigation, which lasted more than a year, the committee disagreed with the intelligence community's assessment that Russian President Vladimir Putin had a supposed preference for then-candidate Donald Trump. We disagree with the intelligence committee's pr- uh, position that Putin favored Trump, Conaway uh, said in an interview this afternoon. He said he had no uh, contact with the White House during the probe. The majority staff um, on the committee is expected to send the draft report to the minority staff led by ranking member Adam Schiff, a Democrat out of California, tomorrow. And once that draft report is adopted by committee Democrats, the report will be submitted to the Intelligence Committee for declassification review. And following that process will be released to the public, officials said, though the timeline at this point is unknown. Sounds rather long and circuitous to me, but we'll see. The report's completion will signify the closure of one chapter in the committee's robust oversight of the threat posed by Moscow, which began well before the investigation and will continue thereafter, Conaway said. The source close to the committee's leadership, though, said that the uh, Democrats on the committee likely would disagree with the majority report. The draft report included 40 other findings, including how Russians used social media to sow discord in the 2016-2015 elections, a lackluster pre-election response to Russia's uh, Russian measures, how anti-Trump research made its way from Russia sources to the Clinton campaign and problematic contacts between senior intelligence community officials and the media. The report also included more than 25 recommendations for Congress and the executive branch to improve election security, U.S. government response to cyber attacks, campaign finance, transparency and counterintelligence practices related to political campaigns and unauthorized disclosures. Well, a committee source says that the 
investigation portion of the probe was complete, meaning the committee would not interview any additional witnesses as part of its effort. I'm sure committee Democrats will disagree with bringing the interview phase to a close, Conaway said. I'm sure they will have specific folks they wanted to interview. But he said that the Republicans on the committee wanted to interview former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, but said uh, Schiff wanted to delay us. Once Manafort was indicted in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, the committee decided not to call him for an interview. Conaway also said that um, he didn't anticipate pursuing contempt proceedings against former Trump campaign manager Steve Bannon or any other witnesses who did not respond favorably to the committee's questioning. He uh, went on to say that chair of the committee took over the probe when House Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunez stepped down in April of 2017 after he was accused of making unauthorized disclosures of classified information in violation of House rules, law regulations, and other standards of conduct, according to the House Ethics Committee that investigated the allegations. Nunez um, supporters at the time said that it was a clever political trick by the Democrats. Republicans on the committee, though, have expanded their investigation of the Trump dossier, seeking answers from Obama administration officials, including a former staffer for Vice President Joe Biden. Nunez sent a questionnaire to the former Biden staffer, whose husband worked for Fusion GPS, the firm behind the dossier, seeking answers to when the administration was made aware of the uh, the documents. Meanwhile, a teenager was killed. A woman was seriously hurt. Not clear if this was mother or son, mother and son, rather. But this was after a package exploded at an Austin home early this morning in a blast similar to another deadly incident nearly two weeks ago in Texas, capital city, as they probed a... a, a, third potential blast. Austin police said that they received a call about the explosion in a neighborhood on the northwest side of the city around 6.45 a.m. after a 17-year-old resident found a package on the front step, brought it inside, and opened it on the kitchen table where it exploded. It's very similar to the incident that occurred in Austin on the 2nd of March, the police chief Brian Manley told reporters. He said authorities don't believe the packages came from a delivery through the U.S. Postal Service and the placement on the home's Uh, front doorstep indicated a similarity to the blast earlier this month. We believe these cases are linked at this time. That's a new development. They had not been sure up to this point. The Austin Travis County EMS tweeted that the teenage uh, male was killed and a woman in her 40s was taken to the hospital. Uh, she had non-life-threatening injuries. FBI agents could uh, could be seen going around the neighborhood, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives said it responded to the scene as well. A separate explosion was reported about 11.49 a.m. in the Monop- Metropolis neighborhood, rather, located southeast of downtown Austin. That left a woman in her 70s with life-threatening injuries, officials said. The Austin-Travis County EMS said on Twitter a second woman in her 80s was being treated for an unrelated medical issue. Authorities have not yet said if these incidents, if this incident is related to the prior two package bombings. Now, damage inside the home from the early morning blast was significant, according to Manley, who added that investigators are going to nearby homes to see if any outdoor surveillance footage exists that might identify the person or persons who left the package on the the, uh, doorstep. One neighbor who was uh, who lived in the neighborhood rather since 1999 and close to the home where the blast took place told local media that the um, she was in total shock and the whole incident was very scary. 
Uh, I checked my um, uh, my house first of all to make sure nothing was on fire. I, I did um, look outside at that point, and next thing I knew, police were knocking at the door, saying that there was a, sp- a suspicious package, one that exploded, and that I needed to leave the house. Part of the challenge for law enforcement there is informing the community that this is a, an area of concern. I went to home midday today. There was a package on the front porch. I didn't give it a second thought to bring it into the house and open it. I was expecting something, but in Austin, uh, apparently word is not out that this is a serious and growing concern and that they believe these incidents uh, may have been linked. So a very serious situation there. As I mentioned, a teenager was killed. A woman was injured after a package exploded at an Austin home. Um, today, in that incident, a 39-year-old Anthony Stephan uh, house was killed after a device exploded on the front porch of his home in the city's northeast Harris Ridge neighborhood, about 12 miles north of the blast today. Both explosions occurred in the early morning hours, uh, which led uh, investigators to believe that the packages had been left um, and uh, overnight and then um, retrieved early morning. Uh, House's death was initially called a homicide, but police last week said it was considered a suspicious death because officials hadn't ruled out the possibility the victim may have constructed an accidentally detonated device himself. Manley said that uh, that case has now been reclassified as a homicide as of Monday. Uh, there is no known motive at this time, according to investigators, but both blasts took place at homes of African-American residents, so authorities cannot rule out hate crimes as well. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Also in the 5 o'clock hour, looking forward to a conversation with Joel Rosenberg, his latest novel, The Kremlin Conspiracy, shifting his focus to Russia. Well, President Trump issued an executive order today blocking the impending takeover of Qualcomm by Broadcom Limited. Broadcom is a chip maker incorporated in Singapore, was looking to take over Qualcomm, a San Diego-based rival. Well, the Trump administration has previously blocked China-related deals, including the sale of Lattice Semiconductor to an investment group and the acquisition of MoneyGram by an Alibaba-affiliated company. Some key parts of the president's executive order read as follows. There is credible evidence that leads me to believe that Broadcom Limited, a limited company organized under the laws of Singapore, along with its uh, its partner, subsidiaries and affiliates together, the purchaser, through exercising control of Qualcomm Incorporated, a Delaware corporation might take action that threatens to impair the national security of the United States. On the basis of the findings set forth in Section 1 of this order, considering the factors described in Section 721F of the Defense Protection Act of 1950 as appropriate and pursuant to my authority under applicable law, including Section 721, I hereby order that A, the proposed takeover of Qualcomm, rather, by the purchaser is prohibited and any substantially equivalent merger, acquisition or takeover, whether affected directly or indirectly, is also prohibited. And that story is developing. The bottom line being there will be uh, no takeover. Well, President Trump's coming tariffs on foreign steel and aluminum imports are the first step in targeting China's unfair trade practices, according to senior White House trade official. The next phase in the president's bid is to level the international playing field on trade. We'll be pushing Beijing 
for illicit intellectual property theft and seeking legislation to impose greater reciprocity in trading practices. The next action, the senior official said, on the president's plate will be Section 301 action, which is uh, designed in a laser beam way to address the issue of forced technology transfer, theft of intellectual property, and China's bid through the China 2025 Agricultural Plan to capture the emerging industries of the future. The administration's trade team is uh, concerned that if China takes control of industries of the future, such as robotics and artificial intelligence, America will not have a future, at least economically. Again, quoting from the senior official in an interview. So that's where we're going next. Well, the new White House national security strategy facilitated the get tough approach by designating China as a strategic rival. The strategy basically acknowledged that our trade with China was not peaceful engagement, but rather that China was engaged in strategies of economic aggression designed to capture global markets, protect their own market, acquire intellectual property and IP of the world, dominate traditional manufacturing industries, and to a large extent, take control of a lot of core natural resources of the world, the senior official uh, said. Well, China is engaging in a systematic effort to advance their economic interests at the expense of the United States and other nations. Again, talking about where the Trump administration says its uh, focus will be next. The president is certainly committed, he went on to say, to addressing uh, that, and we will begin to do that with the Section 301 actions when they come, the senior official said. Well, Trump in August ordered U.S. Trade Representatives, uh, Representative rather, uh, Robert Lighthizer, uh, to conduct the Section 301 investigation. It's a provision of the 1974 Trade Act, and it gives the president broad authority to punish foreign governments for stealing technology and other practices that harm American business. The official didn't say when the Section 301 action will occur. An announcement is expected in the next several weeks. Well, on Sunday, the White House National Trade Council Director Peter Navarro said action on China's intellectual property theft would come soon. China is a very bad actor when it comes to trade practices across a lot of things, but nothing's more important in the near term than addressing the theft of our intellectual property and the forced technology transfer of our technologies, Navarro said on Fox business um, network. Fred Lucas on the president's tariffs, which are very controversial. In fact, there's a legislation that's pending uh, introduced by a Republican representative that is designed to strip the authority of the president uh, to establish the tariffs without uh, congressional approval. But the Trump administration, according to Fred Lucas, uh, Lucas rather, uh, their new tariffs on steel and aluminum from ab- abroad uh, could result in more than five jobs lost for every single job gained. Now, that's according to an analysis from a group that advocates free trade. Now, the job losses will be direct and indirect as price hikes will hit American companies that buy international steel to make screws, wires, machines. Laura Bachman, president of the Trade Partnership, said uh, during an event on Friday, the Trade Partnership anticipates a net loss of 146,000 U.S. jobs. On Thursday, President Trump announced steel tariffs of 25 percent and aluminum tariffs at 10 percent. He was acting on a Commerce Department report that found steel imports were about four times what U.S. exports are. The Commerce Department further said aluminum imports increased to 90 percent of total demand for primary aluminum. When I first heard about these uh, tariffs and the president's motivation for them, I really had to agree that I thought this was really a proposal of his that was uh, coming from the heart, Bachman went on to say. But I can imagine, she said, uh, it must be really hard to travel around the Midwest and coal country and everywhere during the campaign and see so many communities that have been decimated and unemployed uh, workers and hardships 
that are, they're going through, she added. The trade partnership uses the same economic model as the Commerce Department. However, Bachman says uh, only uh, the job gains were noted in the Commerce Report. The tariffs will increase U.S. employment for the iron and steel sector, mainly for aluminum, according to the trade partnership study. However, the consumer price hikes and price increases for business will cost 179,334 American jobs for the rest of the economy. Uh, there would be more than 36,000 American jobs lost in the manufacturing sector, including a loss of 12,000 jobs for fabricated metals, more than 5,000 loss for motor vehicles and parts, more than 2,100 for in transportation equipment uh, makers, according to that report. The Trump administration and many labor unions contend that uh, too many imports kill American jobs. Bachman responds, cheap imported goods might cause job losses, but technology, consumer demand, and other economic changes are also responsible for unemployment in certain sectors. It's uh, much easier, especially for politicians, to point to foreigners as the cause of all of our ills and therefore call import protections as a solution. Uh, Way more, it's way, well, she said way more, but okay, easier than it is to say, well, I'm going to take away your technology so that you can have your job again. Uh, But again, there's two sides to that story, she argues. The tariffs Trump announced would have little impact on China or Russia, according to Tory uh, Whiting, a trade economist at the uh, Heritage Foundation, saying the administration has said time and time again that China is the issue with steel. Maybe Russia is the issue with steel, Whiting said during a panel discussion on Friday. These tariffs will not do much, if anything, to impact our imports uh, from China. Two percent of all U.S. steel imports come from China. That's a statistic from 2016. That number has decreased significantly over the past five to six years because of anti-dumping and uh, countervailing uh, duties that have all but cut off a lot of imports of steel from China. Small business will be the hardest hit, uh, according to the vice president with the National Foreign Trade Council. If you are a big company, so you are, uh, say you are a big beverage uh, manufacturer, you probably can jump and make other supply arrangements. Um, But if you are a small fabricator in Michigan or Ohio and you see a foreign metal because it uh, it has been price attractive for you to do that, and uh, it's, uh, you've had a relationship uh, with a supplier. Those supply chains are going to be cut off by this increased tariff. Uh, you're going to have uh, a hard time jumping a new source uh, of supplies and affording it in the at the same time. I had another. Um, oh, I'm running out of time. I had another uh, comment on that, but anyway, we'll uh, we'll maybe return to that on another occasion. Talking about the president's tariffs, which uh, he announced last week, and others suggesting the fallout uh, will be significant, and that the next step of the administration will be uh, to protect U.S. intellectual property as it relates primarily. Uh, to China, but other countries as well. Also, a reminder that in the 5 o'clock hour, Joel Rosenberg will be my guest. His latest novel is The Kremlin Conspiracy. And while we don't often uh, review novels, in his case, these are based on current events, and uh, they have an uncanny way of reflecting what actually happens. Now, he will tell you that uh, the books generally reflect the worst-case scenario, and the goal is uh, to help us avoid arriving at the worst-case scenario by taking more seriously the threats that uh, pose real dangers to the republic. So we'll talk with him about all of that when he joins us at 5 o'clock for the full second hour of uh, today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy might retire. Of course, we've been hearing that off and on for quite some time. But they were, uh, they're now saying as early as this summer, a GOP senator said. And if true, President Trump would be able to nominate a justice who could tilt the nation's highest court well to the right for the foreseeable future. Kennedy is 81. There are older members sitting on the bench, or at least not as uh, as well. Uh, 81, he... Uh, uh, he's a swing vote. He was appointed to the court by former President Ronald Reagan. He served on the bench for 29 years. Politico reported last uh, last week that Senator Dean Heller, the Republican out of Nevada, said Kennedy is going to retire around sometime early summer, suggesting the potential vacancy on the court could energize the Republican base. But Heller's office uh, provided an official transcript of his comments, making it appear they were seemingly taken out of context by Politico. I believe that we're going to have another Supreme Court justice this year, Heller said from the transcript. I think that Kennedy is going to retire sometime early summer. That uh, being the case, Republicans are going to have the opportunity to put another Supreme Court justice in place, which I am hoping uh, will get our base a little motivated. Well, the Supreme Court didn't respond to requests for comment on whether Kennedy is, in fact, contemplating retirement by summer. And despite Kennedy's uh, conservative background, the justice is the crucial swing vote on the bench, it, uh, tending to side with liberal colleagues on issues of uh, gay rights, abortion rights, as well as some cases involving race and death penalty. Kennedy has uh, written the court's major gay rights decision, including the 2016 ruling, that uh, declared same-sex marriage a constitutional right nationwide. But rumors of his retirement have been discussed since last year, prompting even the White House to release a list of potential nominees. The White House in November said Trump was refreshing his list of potential Supreme Court nominees with input from respected conservative leaders. Uh, He will choose a nominee for the future Supreme Court vacancy should one arise from this updated list of 25 individuals. The statement read back in November. Well, today, the White House official said uh, that the list has not changed since then. Among the 25 names are Senator Mike Lee out of Utah, who said last year that he would not say no if Trump asked him to serve uh, on the high court. Having uh, served as a lawmaker might make it a bit tough, but his name is on that list. A spokesperson for Lee told uh, Fox News on Monday that the senator is honored to represent the people of Utah and is focused on his work in the Senate. Other candidates on that list are Judge Amy Connie Barrett and Judge Kevin Newsom, who uh, both were nominated to the current positions by Trump in May of 2017. Barrett currently serves as U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Newsom serves on U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit. Also on the latest list are Justice Britt C. Grant of the Supreme Court of Georgia, Judge Brett Kavanaugh of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, uh, rather the, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, and Justice Patrick Weirich of the Supreme Court of Oklahoma. The president has kept Judge William Pryor of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit Court and uh, Judge Thomas Hardman from the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the 3rd Circuit Pennsylvania on that list as well. Both Pryor and Hardman were final contenders against Gorsuch for the president's first Supreme Court pick last year. And the president has um, touted the appointment of Gorsuch as, to the high court as one of the most, uh, uh, was one of his best successes, rather, in his presidency. Thus far, Kennedy was Gorsuch's mentor in 1993. Well, the president is going to meet with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Uh, it will be historic and logistically complicated, according to 
those who um, know the details of such matters. It will be historic, unprecedented, perhaps shocking. All these terms have been uh, tossed around since the announcement last Thursday evening that the president and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un will, in fact, meet in May for nuclear disarmament talks. But there's another phrase that has also been applicable to this monumental meeting, a logistical nightmare. There's so many uh, outliers and so many moving parts to this meeting that it could be a major logistical problem for, from all sides, uh, says Yun Sun, who's the co-director of the East Asia program at Washington, D.C.'s Timson Center. The United States would prefer Kim make the trip to Washington, D.C., but that seems highly unlikely, given that North Korea's strongman has never left North Korea since taking power. And even though Pyongyang has been seeking a personal meeting with the sitting U.S. president for at least two decades, experts say it would be surprising if Kim left the hermit kingdom, given his lack of diplomatic experience and presumed comfort level on his own home turf. On the other hand, you can't see a U.S. sitting president going to North Korea. No U.S. leader has ever visited North Korea while serving in the Oval Office. Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton uh, traveled to the country on what amounted to peacekeeping missions, but both Democrats had been out of the White House for years before making their trips. And while experts are skeptical that Trump would uh, appease the Kim regime and travel to Pyongyang, especially given the uh, Uh, The signal it would uh, send to other Asian nations, they added that it's not out of the question, given the strong-willed, in-your-face type of leadership Trump projects. Trump doesn't care um, how he is perceived domestically among politicians, so he might be the only president actually to do this, Yoon went on to say. One would hope he has strong advisors that are giving him good advice. Well, the uh, neutral uh, country option seems most likely uh, to where the two leaders will meet, and uh, despite the nation's uh, desperate uh, um, for these meetings, uh, Norway, Switzerland, China, Russia are being thrown around as possible hosts. The most likely option appears to be South Korea or the Truce Village, um, the demilitarized zone between the two rival Koreas. So something to watch and listen for. Uh, meanwhile, what has uh, what's missed much of the uh, mainstream media's coverage is the region's biggest player, and that is, of course, China. The Kim regime's long-running control of North Korea could, could have... Um, uh, could not have existed, rather, without the significant support from the communists in Beijing. In fact, North Korea is a puppet of the Chinese to some degree. It's interesting to note that the uh, the day Trump announced his plans for tariffs on steel, North Korean officials reached out to officials in the South requesting a meeting. Undoubtedly, Kim has felt the sting of Trump's economic sanctions, but more than Kim, it's the Chinese who have the most to lose economically, especially if war were to break out on the Korean Peninsula. Now, Trump's announcement of a tariff on Chinese steel and aluminum may have finally been the straw that broke the camel's back. And if China is willing to truly end the nuclear threat posed by its North Korean puppet, then maybe it can get uh, concessions from Trump on tariffs. So the timing may may be interesting in all of this. The fact of the matter is that the U.S. is China's largest single trading partner, second largest regional partner behind only the European Union, accounting for over uh, $521 billion in trade annually. And meanwhile, the North Korean economy is almost entirely dependent on China, which accounts for over 90 percent of its imports and over 85 percent of its exports. Quite literally, China is North Korea's lifeline. So if we have uh, uh, China is the key to effectively dealing with North Korea, if that hasn't yet been made clear. Well, Trump has indicated that he has no plans to withdraw any sanctions until there are Actual results and talks don't equate to results. Representative Edward Royce, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, argued for a cautious approach, saying 
Uh, We can pursue more diplomacy as we keep applying pressure ounce by ounce. And he added, remember, North Korean regimes have repeatedly used talks and empty promises to extract concessions and buy time. North Korea uses this to advance its nuclear and missile program. We've got to break this cycle. Kevin Martin, who's president of Peace Action, said North Korea is putting virtually all topics of concern on the table, at least rhetorically at this point. Trump now has the opportunity to achieve what no president has been able to achieve in seven decades of U.S. North Korea relations, make real strides toward lasting peace on the Korean Peninsula. Is it North Korea or is it China that is putting denuclearization on the table? The question is being asked. Either way, it is uh, sincerely hoped that a nuclear uh, North Korea comes to an end. And that's a big ticket uh, for a very short period of time when these two leaders are purportedly planning to meet. Now, we're going to talk with Joel Rosenberg uh, in uh, the five o'clock hour, but I noted that earlier today, Prime Minister Theresa May uh, in London said that Russia is highly likely to blame for poisoning a former spy and his daughter with a military grade nerve agent. And she demanded that Moscow give a compelling explanation or face extensive retaliation. We're going to talk about the expanding role of Russia and uh, Russia's leader. The elections for them is coming up, I believe it's this weekend which are sort of a formality. Um, But uh, May told lawmakers again in London in a strongly worded statement that without a credible response from Russia by the end of Tuesday, that's tomorrow, Britain would consider the attack on uh, this pair, son, uh, I should say father and daughter, uh, in a quiet English city, an unlawful use of force by the Russian state against the United Kingdom. There can be no question of business as usual with Russia, she said, without saying uh, what measures Britain might take. A Russian Foreign Ministry spokesman Maria Zakharova, she dismissed May's allegations, calling it a circus show in the British Parliament. She may be able to make fun now, but if uh, Theresa May is serious, there may be consequences. Uh, the pair, by the way, father and uh, daughter, remain in critical condition after being found unconscious on May uh, March the 4th in Salisbury. A police detective who was... Uh, who came in contact with them is in serious but stable condition as well. And the nerve gas was uh, traced to Russia as having been the only producer of that particular nerve gas at the end of the Cold War. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next in our five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Joel Rosenberg, his latest novel, The Kremlin Conspiracy. Looking forward uh, to that. Well, if you live on the northeast side of, uh, of Portland, you may have noticed a huge plume of black smoke. It was visible throughout the Portland-Vancouver metro area uh, this morning. Apparently, a large fire broke out today, this morning, near northeast 75th and Killingsworth at an auto salvage yard. At least three structures on that property, including an apartment and a duplex, have burned. Some nearby homes and one school have been evacuated. The fire started at about 9.15 this morning. Officials said everyone working at the yard was able to, to get out safely, thankfully. Uh, the, the cause of the fire is not yet determined. Several fire crews from Portland Fire and Rescue, as well as one from the Port of Portland, were called in to assist. The power has been turned off in that area for the safety of the firefighters. At least it was earlier today. may have been restored by now. Uh, The power uh, line, some power lines rather, came down around the fire, making the job more dangerous uh, for crews 
who were uh, bravely putting it out. Students at the uh, Sacagawea Head Start School at 4800 Northeast 74th were moved to another location on Prescott, according to the school district spokesperson. All students there were uh, kept indoors for the rest of the day. Parents and students at uh, Beverly Clary Fernwood and Rose City Park schools downtown, downwind of the fire, rather, they also... Um, had been told via email that students uh, there were going to be kept indoors. Portland Public Schools sent a letter to parents warning of possible negative health impacts. Of course, you have all the stuff that makes up cars, uh, the chemicals that go into the seats and, of course, the rubber tires and all of that uh, burning. That's going to have an impact. And the uh, Portland Public School letter read, in part, due to the large amount of smoke in the air that potentially could have unhealthy carcinogens and is blowing in our direction, we're choosing to keep our students inside at all three campuses. We will reevaluate prior to lunch recess. The letter went on to say the smoke was so thick and traveled so far that the Forest Grove Fire Department in Washington County sent out a notice that the source was uh, uh, from a fire in northeast Portland and not to call 911 because people were concerned uh, about the smoke in the air. So hopefully that is now contained. Well, a Canadian couple are celebrating their religious freedom victory, saying we knew God would take care of us. Well, an Ontario judge ruled this week that a foster agency violated this Protestant couple's religious freedom rights when it opted to remove two children from their home and banned them from fostering over their refusal to teach about the Easter Bunny, as if the Easter Bunny were an actual character. Uh, Francis and Derek Bars uh, didn't grow up learning about the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus and didn't want to lie about the fictional figures to the three and four year old sisters in their care. Their convictions were based on their Christian faith and raised concerns among some of the Children's Aid Society of Hamilton, which took the children away from the bars just uh, with just a day's notice, citing the couple's refusal to respect the girls cultural traditions. Now, I'm not sure what culture uh, it finds at its core. Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, but as committed members of a small Presbyterian denomination, the bars assumed there would be instances where their values would line up with, uh, rather wouldn't line up with the CAS, a government-approved secular organization uh, that they knew placed kids with same-sex parents and supported gender transition for youth, but they never anticipated what happened back in 2016. Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. If someone had told us then that the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus would team up against us, we would have asked what they were smoking, Derek Barr said this week in an interview at, uh, with Christianity Today. Well, like some in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, the Bars do not observe Easter and Christmas, keeping only the Sabbath as a holy day. And when they became foster parents in December of 2015, they altered their celebrations to purchase uh, Christmas gifts for their girls and take them to a family gathering as well as a Sunday school program at another church. So they were celebrating Christmas. Um, But apparently the Easter Bunny was not part of that uh, package. Beyond their own theological views of Christian holidays, we have a strict no lying policy because God is the God of truth, who is truth. And telling kids that the Easter Bunny and Santa are real is lying, Francis Barr told Christianity Today. They had shared their position against the Easter Bunny, Santa and other traditions like Halloween during their training and home study. So it shouldn't have come as any surprise, even though the children's birth mother gave no instructions specifically regarding the Easter Bunny or Santa. CAS staff still brought up Santa with the foster children and urged the bars to explicitly incorporate the Easter Bunny, specifically the tradition of the Easter Bunny bringing chocolate eggs, according to the court documents. Now, again, the mother, the biological mother had not raised the issue. CAS uh, discussed with the uh, foster children who are four and five, I believe, 
um, about the Easter Bunny. So they raised an issue that would not otherwise have been an issue. Later, one placement worker expressed concern that the bars would condemn potential gay and lesbian adoptive parents for their girls, though the couple assured her otherwise. Uh, It seems likely the Lindsay's discussion regarding prospective same-sex couples to the bars was fueled by a potential stereotypical belief in the inability of Christians uh, to support same-sex marriage, wrote the uh, judge of the Superior Court in Ontario. In a 62-page decision issued uh, on Tuesday last, he concluded that CAS, which is Children's Services there, uh, violated the bar's religious protections under the Canadian uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. He ordered that the organization update their file to reflect their standing so that the bar's history won't keep them from future opportunities to adopt or service foster parents. They have since begun the adoption process in another province. Their Constitutional rights, and again, we're talking of Canada, uh, rights of freedom of religion and freedom of expression have been infringed and must be remedied in a manner that is appropriate and just in the circumstances, the judge wrote. Society doesn't uh, reasonably accommodate the bars or even attempt um, or didn't uh, attempt to do so. The Reformed Presbyterian couple sought no compensation in the lawsuit but wanted to ensure fair treatment for fellow Christian couples in Canada seeking to open their homes to children. When they told us, you must lie to these kids or they would be removed, we knew that uh, we were uh, we were not responsible for the results of um, doing what's right and God would take care of us, uh, Derek Bars said, again, speaking to Christianity today. He has upheld us. The favorable result has been tremendously encouraging for our brothers and sisters in the Lord who had joined them to pray that God would turn the judge's heart as he does the king's heart in Proverbs 30, or rather 21, 1. The bar said he noted the Alliance Defending Freedom, a U.S.-based group advocating religious liberty, sent funds to support the Canadian law firm that represented the couple. So they've straddled uh, the border to help this couple. The potential class between faith protections and LGBT uh, rights has come up in the United States as well, but often the other way around with religious agencies confronting fear or pressure over their requirements for adoptive or foster parents. Now, the Easter Bunny was perhaps just a pretext for raising the issue, but that was um, the issue that ultimately uh, landed them in trouble, if you will. South Carolina's top foster care agency, Miracle uh, Hill, is currently facing legal backlash in this country involving the Palmetto State's Department of Social Services for requiring that foster parents share its Christian faith. Last year, Texas and South Dakota passed protections allowing state-funded child welfare agencies to continue to use faith-based restrictions for family placements. Many adoptive and foster parents are Christian, and it's less likely for them to face discrimination like the bars in uh, Canada, while less overt discrimination cases may occur on occasion in the U.S. foster care system, it's not the norm. That's according to Kelly Rosada, the former focus on the family leader and mom to four kids adopted from foster care, saying, I worry that the discrimination fear is used as an excuse not to engage and help these kids who desperately need permanent and loving families, Rosati said, again speaking to Christianity Today, noting that more than 100,000 kids in U.S. foster care are awaiting adoption. A similar case to the bar took place in 2011 in the U.K., a judge there cited against a potential set of foster parents who said during the application stage that they would not endorse homosexuality to children in their home due to their Pentecostal Christian beliefs. The court ruled that the laws protecting people from discrimination because of their sexual orientation should take precedence over the right not to be discriminated against on religious grounds. So kids' needs were not met in that case. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. Joel Rosenberg will be my guest in the 5 o'clock hour. His latest book, The Kremlin Conspiracy, a novel. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We've been looking forward to this hour because my guest is Joel Rosenberg. And in his latest international political thriller, this New York Times bestselling author ventures into new territory. He shifts his focus from the Middle East and the threat of radical Islamism to a rising new threat to the United States and the NATO alliance that's posed by leaders in Moscow. The book, The Kremlin Conspiracy, published by Tyndale House. Well, the grandson of Orthodox Jews who escaped the pogroms of the Tsarist Russia in the early years of the 20th century and immigrated to the United States in search of political and religious freedom, my guest Joel Rosenberg says the subject is not just fiction for him, it's personal. As a former aide to U.S. and Israeli political leaders, his storylines and richly detailed plots are derived from his personal conversations with world leaders and intelligence operatives and have um, uh, been described as being ripped from today's headlines. Now, the plot of the Kremlin conspiracy is no different, drawing parallels in, in the real world world events, mounting tensions between the United States and Russia. Joel Rosenberg, as I mentioned, is a New York Times bestselling author of 13 novels, five nonfiction books, and nearly five million copies sold. He has been interviewed by or written articles for hundreds of media outlets, has been profiled by the New York Times, the Washington Times, Jerusalem Post. He's also the founder and chairman of the Joshua Fund, a nonprofit educational and charitable organization to mobilize Christians to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus with food, clothing, medical supplies and other humanitarian relief. A graduate of Syracuse University with a BFA in filmmaking, he also studied at Tel Aviv University, and he and his wife Lynn are dual U.S. Israeli citizens, live with their son in Israel. It is, sorry, I should say sons in Israel. It is such a pleasure to have you back. Welcome. Hey, Georgine, how are you? I'm doing very well. Well, it's, uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's wonderful that you have a new book out. But as I mentioned, this one shifts focus away from what much of your writing of, of late has been focused on, and that is what's, uh, what Islam is, uh, the threat they're posing. You're shifting your focus, and rightly, uh, to Russia. Explain that shift, and while it might seem obvious, I think maybe you can fill in some of those, uh, those questions. Well, it, because the, at the heart of what I'm writing about, Georgina, and you and I have been talking about these novels for years, I write about this premise, this, this question, this concept, which is that to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it, right? And so, you know, we were blindsided um, at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, when we just didn't see the evil that was posed by the uh, imperial Japanese regime in Tokyo. We just didn't understand it, and then we got hit by it. We didn't understand the evil uh, uh, that was brewing in the the caves of Afghanistan, and suddenly on September 11th, 2001, we got hit by al-Qaeda and the forces of Osama bin Laden. Yeah, we can look back later and say, oh, there were signs. How come we didn't see it? But that's the challenge of life is, is, mm-hmm. is when evil is rising, do you identify it and then take the actions necessary to prepare yourself, right? The, fam- the, the, the new Academy Award-winning movie, Darkest Hour, so brilliant um, about uh, Winston Churchill uh, coming to power in uh, May 1941. Why? Because he's the one who understood the rise of Hitler, and most people in Great Britain, certainly in their government, did not. So what I'm doing with these political thrillers is is writing about worst-case scenarios that could happen. I'm not predicting they will happen, but they could happen if Western leaders, American leaders in particular – 
are blindsided by evil they do not see coming. So for many years, I was writing about the threat of radical Islam because I felt people like President Obama and other leaders just did not understand the magnitude of that threat. They couldn't even name it. Mm -hmm. But now what I see and what concerns me is there is evil rising in other places beyond the Middle East. Clearly, it's rising in North Korea, but it's also rising in Russia. And in many ways, I would say, Georgine, Vladimir Putin, uh, the dictator in Russia, is more dangerous to us than the threat of radical Islam. I want to explore that in just a moment. But under the previous administration, there was that um, photo op in which the secretary of state held a red button and there was a reset uh, that the United States announced with Russia. Now there's lots of clamoring about its attempt to influence uh, Americans and uh, the American election. How how badly are we misunderstanding uh, the threat of Russia and Vladimir Putin in particular uh, as it relates to the potential evil that could come out of failing to uh, to check his power or at least his attempts to exercise power? Well, successive uh, administrations in Washington, both Democrat and Republican, have have uh, underestimated. Uh, the, the the real evil that is Vladimir Putin. Well, didn't George now, Bush look into his eyes and see something there? Yes, and he said he, he saw uh, someone, he found a friend, uh, someone he could trust. Now, first of all, we all can make mistakes, uh, and we can we can evaluate someone positively at the beginning, and then, you know, you will know a man by his fruit. Well, over time, we say, oh, well, I miscalculated. Obviously, George W. Bush uh, miscalculated. He misread Putin, but he also needed Putin at that time because we needed. We were fighting in in Afghanistan. We were fighting Al Qaeda. We needed to make sure the Russians didn't interfere with us. So you know, I give I give George W. Bush a pass because he got a lot right in foreign policy. He he got Putin wrong, and Putin showed us how wrong we all were about him in 2008 during the Olympics in the summer. He invaded the Republic of Georgia. Now, George W. Bush was the president then, and he was no pushover, right? He'd already invaded two countries, Afghanistan and Iraq. But Putin gambled that if he invaded a country like Georgia, that that President Bush would not respond militarily. And Putin was right. And then, of course, came the Obama years. And there's an old line, Georgine, that came from Vladimir Lenin, uh, the, the founder of the Soviet Union. And Lenin used to say, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is, this is pretty close. He said, probe with bayonets. You know, I don't know, it's probe the enemy. If you find mush, push. But if you find steel, stop. And in a sense, uh, uh, Putin has been probing Western and American weaknesses, NATO weaknesses, looking for signs of weaknesses. And when he when he invades a country and nobody stops him, he goes and invades another country, southern Ukraine, Crimea, eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, Syria, uh, where he's helping slaughter hundreds of thousands of people with his allies, Iran and Bashar al-Assad. And no in no place has Vladimir Putin found steel. And the, the test for President Trump is he has got to draw a line. He has got to show steel where Obama showed mush, if you'll, if you'll allow the analogy. And right now, um, we, we have President Trump being radio silent on Vladimir Putin. I mean, you know, Trump is not shy about criticizing anybody from Rocket Man in North Korea to his own attorney general. But I would argue Trump is, uh, President Trump is more 
aggressive in critical, being critical with his own attorney general than he is with the worst dictator on the planet, Vladimir Putin. Now, I'm not saying it's criminal or corrupt, but it's, it's disconcerting mm-hmm. because evil is clearly rising. Putin, you know, the old phrase, uh, you can give a mouse a cookie, he'll want a glass of milk. Well, Vladimir Putin has eaten the whole bag of Oreos, and now he just seized the dairy farm, and so far nobody is stopping him. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, The Kremlin Conspiracy. Uh, We're going to also ask him about Prime Minister Theresa May, who earlier today uh, demanded that Moscow give a compelling explanation or face extensive retaliation there, saying that Russia is likely to blame for poisoning a former spy and his daughter with a military-grade nerve agent. Who is this Vladimir Putin and what might we expect in the days ahead? Again, we're talking with Joel Rosenberg, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We are talking about Joel Rosenberg's latest, The Kremlin Conspiracy. And uh, you're going to enjoy this one as much as the others, but it is also a cautionary tale to help us better understand the evil that threatens to overwhelm if we are naive enough to look away. Now, you uh, pointed out, or at least I mentioned earlier in our conversation, that um, this book isn't just a theoretical exercise for you, but you actually have some family ties uh, that lead back to uh, uh, to this country. Tell us a little bit of your family history and why this is more personal, perhaps, than some of your previous books. Sure. Happy to do it, Georgina. I, yeah, because The Kremlin Conspiracy, this new political thriller just out last week, is is really about a czar, a modern czar, a uh, monarch uh, rising in Moscow and threatening to with an American president, you know, his focus is on North Korea, his focus is on Iran. Uh, this Russian dictator decides to seize one of the NATO countries uh, in Europe, uh, one of the Baltic countries. And, and, and that would be so unexpected. Uh, but the theory of, in the novel, in the Kremlin conspiracy, is the Russian leader thinks, if I go grab a small NATO country, yeah, they're protected by the NATO alliance, but they're. But in the end, are they really going to go the whole alliance? Are they really going to go to war with Russia? Are they going to start a nuclear war with me to to get to get me out of some small NATO country? But if they don't, that's the end of NATO. NATO collapses if if the whole alliance doesn't defend each member according to Article Five, which is the Mutual Defense Pact. So I see in Moscow in real life. Putin seeing himself as a czar, somebody who wants to expand the borders, the influence, the money, the power of Russia. Now, my family has a bad history with the czars. Uh, In 1906, my father's side of the family, my grandparents and my great-grandparents, they were Orthodox Jews living in Russia. And they had to escape under Tsar Nicholas II because such evil was rising that uh, all kinds of attacks, anti-Semitic attacks were being made on Jews at that time. 60,000 Jewish people died. They were murdered during those, those years of the Tsar. And our family had to escape. Jews were being beaten. They were being raped. Their homes were being burned. Their possessions being stolen. And fortunately, by the grace of God, my Jewish family got out of Russia and got to the United States. This is where we found political freedom, economic freedom, and spiritual freedom. This is where my Jewish family came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And I'm very grateful for the United States, but I'm also very wary, I think, in my history, in my DNA about the czars. 
And I see in Vladimir Putin a man who's not really a communist ideologue, though he was trained as a KGB operative and eventually became the head of the modern KGB, known as the FSB. And that all happened during the Soviet communist era. But I don't think of him as a communist. I don't think that's what drives him. I think he's a, he's a monarchist. He's a, he is an imperialist, and he feels humiliated by the collapse of the Soviet Union. He has said so, and he wants to reassert Russian power and influence. He wants to be the most feared and, and, uh, and, and yeah, most feared leader on the planet. And uh, no matter how many countries he's invaded so far, a lot of people are ignoring him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's making him even more dangerous, which is essentially the, the, the fictional element in the Kremlin conspiracy, but it, it's all too real. China's President Xi Jinping was just granted the the authority to uh, preside over his country indefinitely. The elections in Russia are uh, are approaching. Uh, If the if Vladimir Putin is seeking czar like powers, um, what do you fear most uh, about uh, the role that he's likely to play moving forward? Or is it that he's surrounded himself with like minded people or is the, the primary focus Vladimir Putin and his ambitions? Well, Vladimir Putin is, yeah, he is a czar. That's the way he sees himself, in my judgment. And I think that this election on Sunday, May, March 18th, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. He's killed off, arrested, or driven into exile any serious person who is likely to oppose him. So he's going to win. Uh, that's not the question. The question is whether he ever runs again. I think it's more likely that he will never leave, and and um, and that this is just an it's just an exercise in in sort of getting to the next stage. I think he, I think in fact that what the Chinese have just done is going to make him think, why am I running at all? Mm-hmm. Why don't I just get people to declare me the monarch, the czar, and be done with it already? But what? But the bigger question is what happens next. Uh, because his country, look, his country is weak. What's interesting is he wants to be a strong man. He's got nuclear weapons, so he is, he does, he is very dangerous, much more dangerous than the radical Islamic leaders who don't have nuclear weapons yet, or even Kim Jong-un, who may have a few, but he's just getting started with his nuclear arsenal. Uh, the Russians have 2,500 active nuclear warheads and 5,000 more in storage. So this is very dangerous, but the economy is dying. The country is weak. Um, poverty is rampant. Alcoholism is, is, is just rampant. It's epidemic. Uh, one out of four men don't make it to the age of 55, mm. and many are because of alcohol and drug poisoning. So my point is he, Putin is not popular. He's not winning elections because everybody loves him he, and, and because he's making their life better. He, he distracts them. By invading another country, saying we're under, you know, we're under attack. We're, we're, we've got, we're, we're facing grave dangers from the, the criminals in the West, from the imperialists, and we need to be strong. And he, and he appeals to the bloodlust in the Russian people who would, who want to see him be strong, because then that makes their, their sacrifices meaningful. Uh, their lives don't get better, but they feel like they're, they're, they're sacrificing something for a larger cause. That's the narrative that Putin plays, and it means that he, the danger is he's always having to invade or attack somebody else. And you were saying just before the break, uh, a Russian spy 
who turned against Russia and became a double agent working for Great Britain and now living in Great Britain, he was just murdered, poisoned, he and his daughter, out in the open in Great Britain. And Prime Minister Theresa May says all the evidence points to Moscow, and she expects an answer in the next 24 hours. Is there any What's their explanation? What's Putin's explanation? Because otherwise, uh, there's going to have to be some, some very serious consequences. Uh, look at this. Putin's basically anybody that opposes him that he sees as a threat, they die or they disappear. This is, this is not just a czar. This is a, this is a mafia boss, right? And that's what makes him so dangerous. Mm. In the uh, Kremlin conspiracy just out, uh, the American president, his team, they're distracted with, uh, well, things that we might expect, North Korea, Iran. Um, and they fail, as uh, is the case in many of your books, to grasp the magnitude of the threat posed by a nuclear-armed Russian leader. Give us just a brief glimpse in, uh, of the characters, the two main characters in the storyline in the Kremlin conspiracy. Yeah, one of the things that I enjoyed writing it was uh, to create two different angles on this Russian leader. One is uh, the leader's son-in-law. Uh, is a young lawyer, Oleg Kraskin. He, he falls in love with the daughter of the man who is going to emerge to be the czar of Russia. He doesn't know that at first, but as he, as he marries into the family, you know, Alexander Luganov is rising to be this, this, this president and czar of Russia. And suddenly Oleg finds himself not just married into the family, but he's actually hired as a senior aide to Luganov. At the same time, we keep toggling back and forth between their lives and the life of a guy named Marcus Riker. Marcus uh, joins the Marines after 9-11. He fights in Afghanistan. He joins the Secret Service. But through some personal tragedies that I don't want to give away on the air, he ends up having to step away from the Secret Service. And he finds himself as a private citizen in Moscow as all hell breaks loose. And eventually, Oleg's life and Marcus's life are going are gonna to converge at a critical moment, just at the, probably at the most dangerous moment in U.S.-Russian relations. We're talking about the Kremlin conspiracy. Joel Rosenberg is my guest. It's his latest thriller, and it is thrilling. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. I've been looking forward to this conversation with Joel Rosenberg, whose latest book was just released, The Kremlin Conspiracy. Uh, and the, the focus shifts uh, from um, the Middle East and what's happening there to what's happening in Russia. And it is a thrilling, fascinating book that, like all of his other books, uh, reflect what's going on and what you're reading and hearing in the news. Now, the uh, new U.S. News and World Report has called you a modern-day Nostradamus. Uh, in your first novel, you wrote about 9-11. Your most recent trilogy of novels foretold the explosive rise of the Islamic State. And as you mentioned a few moments ago, you, you tend to go for the worst-case scenario to help us avoid getting there. Um, what's the worst case scenario with, uh, with the Kremlin? And uh, as you um, made one of your, your primary goals, uh, helping us not to misunderstand the nature and the threat of evil, what do you hope we'll take away that will help us avoid uh, disaster? Sure. Well, Georgine, one of the things I, I'm concerned about is this idea that, um, that Vladimir Putin uh, could try to do a lightning-fast invasion of one, 
two or all three of the NATO allies on his borders known as the Baltic states. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. These are small, lightly defended countries, but they are members of NATO. Therefore, they fall under what's known as Article 5 protection. That is, if one country of NATO is attacked, every member of NATO considers it as though they've been attacked also, and they all come to that country's defense. That's how the NATO alliance works. But the theory in the, in the novel is that the Russian dictator decides, I'm going to go grab one or more of those countries really fast. They could do it in about 96 hours, given how few troops there are in those countries. And if they did that, the, the, the theory would be, the gamble is, would, would America actually go to war with Russia to rescue Estonia, Latvia, or Lithuania? Most Americans can't find it on a map. Would we really risk not only war with Russia, but possibly nuclear war with somebody as erratic and dangerous as a Vladimir Putin type person? And the gamble in the novel, the Kremlin conspiracy, is no. He, the, the Russian leader says there's no way that they're really going to go to war. And then if they don't, that's the end of NATO. In 96 hours, I could prove that, there, that, that NATO was hollow. It's a, it's a straw man. It would collapse. Because if it doesn't defend the Article 5 treaty with, you know, with these countries, then, then no country is going to believe that, that they're safe. And then suddenly the leader of Russia, in real life Putin, would suddenly find himself the most powerful man on the planet, not only armed with nuclear weapons, but intimidating NATO into collapse. I actually – I write this as a, as a novel because I don't – because it hasn't happened, and I hope it never happens – but, Georgine, I fear with every passing day that it could happen. And the only way, in my view, to prevent happening is to far more NATO, including American forces, to be pre-positioned as deterrent forces in those three Baltic countries so that you create a speed bump so high mm -hmm. that Putin isn't tempted to go in with his lightning fast strike. Now, I just met with the uh, Lithuanian ambassador to Washington just last week. He had, his, his president and had heard about this novel that I'd written, and his chief advisor, her, her chief advisor, contacted the ambassador and said, you should meet with this guy and find out what this novel is all about. And so we had a fascinating breakfast together last Friday, and actually April 3rd, the leaders of the three Baltic countries are coming for a summit with President Trump. That's good. They're going to talk about these issues. But I hope the result is not just a summit, a photo op. The question is, are we going to put enough troops and tanks and you know, arms in those countries to make sure that this type of scenario never happens? And it's, uh, it's something I hope for and, um, because I'm very concerned that Putin is probing for another country that he can grab. Yeah, yeah. It's just absolutely fascinating how, how your novels often lead to conversation with the very leaders who are subjects of the, the novel. Even though it's fiction, it, it relates to the real world, and uh, you have the potential to influence the conversation the President of the United States will have with these three Baltic countries. Now, in terms of Russia, if well, you... I hope so. let, me, let me just add, Georgie, yes. one thing. A uh, uh, week and a half ago, I was at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, I was at a private luncheon with Vice President Mike Pence. He and I have been friends for years. Uh, he and his wife, Karen, have been reading my novels. They've been fans of the books for years. 
And he, he didn't know I was going to be at that lunch. So he came over and he gave me a hug and he said, Hey, where's my copy of the new book? <laughs> and so, uh, I, and so we made arrangements for me to, to get it to him. And I know I got the message back that it's, that he got it. So not only is, you know, the, the, the ambassador of Lithuania and, 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 and the advisors to the president of Lithuania reading it, but the vice president of the United States will be reading it soon, which means that the ideas in it can get into uh, the, the, the White House at the highest possible level. So you don't always get that when you're a novelist, but uh, it's kind of cool when uh, when people at those levels are reading your books. That's just incredible. Well, let's talk about Vladimir Putin. And if he were to engage in this kind of aggressive behavior, we've seen it on a smaller scale. There's, there's no question that he uh, would entertain such an idea. Who would his allies be? And what would that do to what's happening in Syria? What would that do with Iran and, and North Korea? How would they play into, if at all, uh, a scenario in which um, the Kremlin would assert itself in such a dramatic way? Well, it, that's a great question. And there's elements to the answer that are actually in the novel. Mm-hmm. The relationship between uh, Moscow and Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, is actually a central element in the novel. So I'm going to avoid for now talking about how these two countries could be working together. Iran is another key player in the novel. Look, these are close allies of yes. Putin. And so we can't think that these things are disconnected. Um, the, 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 the threat posed by Iran and North Korea, where President, uh, President Trump is focusing on, on now, those are real threats. And you and I have been talking about them for a long time. They remain very serious threats, and they're growing in their danger to us. But we can't miss the fact that behind those two powers is a power that already has nuclear weapons and the missiles to deliver them to our continent. So the, the Putin is actually more dangerous than either of those two, which is why we can't let ourselves get distracted only by focusing on the smaller powers that don't have a full nuclear arsenal and missile system yet. We've got to keep our eye on the one that does. And um, But we also have to realize that Putin, Putin doesn't really need an ally to go invade one of these small Baltic NATO countries. He, he's got enough forces. He could send 100,000 troops into one or all three of those countries in 96 hours. There are fewer than 5,000 NATO forces uh, deployed in, in those three countries combined right now. Uh, now, that's in addition to the, the thousands of forces that the local countries have, but it's not that big. It's not that much. Um, and that means those countries could be overrun very quickly. And I personally do not believe that the United States government under Obama or under Trump would actually go to war with Russia to get them back. I, I, I know that sounds terrible. I'm not trying to say that I'm being critical of the president. Um, I'm saying the only way to be sure that you don't have to go to war with Russia over this is to make sure you have a serious and a much larger deterrent force so you never have to you never actually have to answer the question would we or wouldn't we yeah yeah we're going to take a quick break but we'll continue our conversation with Joel Rosenberg again his latest book just out The Kremlin Conspiracy a novel you do not want to miss you're listening to the Georgine Rice show we'll be back 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with best-selling author Joel Rosenberg. His latest book shifts attention to uh, Russia. It's titled The Kremlin Conspiracy, a novel. It is a page-turner, and uh, just like all of the uh, the books before it, you're not going to want to miss it. Now, uh, let's, let's talk about um, what happens... Uh, if uh, the the character in your novel, The Kremlin Conspiracy, is successful, if the United States does not uh, take seriously the threat that Russia poses, if Russia does seize opportunities in these Baltic countries uh, to, to seize control, what's the, the, the worst case scenario in terms of NATO collapses? Uh, Russia emerges as a, a nuclear and world power again. What happens? Yeah, well, it's a nightmare scenario because uh, the first thing that's going to happen is that every small country in Europe is going to suddenly be terrified of Putin. He doesn't have to actually invade all of these countries and, and physically occupy them in order to get them to do what he wants, right? To give them the money he wants, to give them the resources he wants, the natural resources, to uh, vote the way he wants in the UN, to, you know, all kinds of things that they will have to do uh, when you live next to a mafia boss and the local police are of no help. You pretty much have to do whatever the mafia boss wants, right? And you might feel safer for a little while, little while, because you live in a safe neighborhood because no one's going to cross the mafia boss. But at some point, he's going to ask you to do things that are criminal, that are evil. He's going to get your kids to do things that are criminal, that are evil. This is a, this is this means the collapse of the Western um, the, the the Western alliance, and that would leave the United States very much alone uh, in a world where we you know we do not want a nuclear armed evil dictator running the world, um, and you know we have a lot more power, a lot more wealth, a lot more influence than Vladimir Putin. But if he plays his cards better than ours, better than we play ours. He could end up being the most powerful, most influential person in the world where the world would start to bow literally and figuratively before him. And, you know, that we've seen that we've seen that movie before Hmm. uh, in Europe. And we do not want to see it again. Again, you're quoted as saying to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. You mentioned that the previous and the current administration uh, don't seem to fully appreciate the threat that Russia poses. Are you optimistic moving forward that given the fact that you've written the book, that the vice president of the United States is reading it, um, that the light bulb might come on and that we'll be more likely moving forward? to recognize uh, the, the threat that Russia actually poses beyond uh, efforts to influence uh, U.S. elections? I'm cautiously optimistic, Georgine. Yes, meaning, look, I, I want to be clear and I want to be fair to President Trump. There's a lot of criticism, of course, of him, a lot of attack. Uh, you know, but let me just say, I think overall on policy, he's doing a lot better than I would have thought, than many Americans would have thought that he was doing. That he would do. He, his, the economy is roaring. The stock market's roaring. Jobs are being created. On, on the economy, he's doing an excellent job. It's messy. <laughs> Washington is messy with President Trump in power. But, but are things getting done? Yes. Now, in foreign policy, look, he, he's, President Trump is increasing U.S. defense spending dramatically. That's good. He's, he's pushing NATO to spend more money on their own defense. And they are. 
that's good. He is rebuilding our alliances with NATO, with Israel, with the Arab world, with South Korea and Asia. These are good things. And he has an excellent national security team around him, right? If he was really weak on Putin at, at his core, fundamentally, then why would you put Jim Mattis, the general, to be a four-star general, to be the head of the Defense Department? I mean, the man was the supreme allied commander of NATO. Why would you put People who are tough on Russia, like Mike Pompeo at CIA or Mike Pence at the vice presidency, you wouldn't if you were criminally corrupt and colluding with Vladimir Putin. So I don't buy the left attack that, Putin, that, that Trump and Putin are somehow in league together. Okay, So let's set that one aside. The, the issue, though, is still, however, why is President Trump so quiet about Putin. Well, mm-hmm. He's radio silent. It, it doesn't make sense. He is critical of everybody. Rocket Man in North Korea, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi. He's tougher on Jeff Sessions at the, as his own attorney general than he is on Vladimir Putin. Why? I am not willing to say that it's criminal and it's corrupt because I because it doesn't that doesn't square with all the evidence of what the president is doing right. Okay. But it all. But there are things that the president could be doing, like putting more forces in the Baltics as deterrent force. He should do it. I pray he does do it. He should be uh, imposing uh, sanctions on Putin and Putin's cronies, as was passed overwhelmingly in a sanctions bill last year by Congress. More than 400 votes in the House. Only two people voted against it in the Senate. Like. But the president hasn't done it yet. So these things are odd, but they're fixable, you know, and I'm not going to go immediately into that, you know, oh, he's in league with Putin. But he's got to step up. Maybe he's distracted because he's got North Korea to deal with, Iran to deal with, the Middle East peace process to deal with, the economy to deal with, Obamacare. That's a lot. But we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. And the president has to get tougher He has to show steel towards Putin. Again, the book is titled The Kremlin Conspiracy, an excellent novel. Joel Rosenberg, you've done it again. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Hey, great to be with you, Georgine, as always. Really appreciate it. By the way, the book is published by Tyndale, available in bookstores right now now. Hey, taking a quick look at tomorrow's program, we're going to talk with Mark Morano. He is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. He'll join me on the program. Also on Wednesday, Mark Hancock, CEO of Trail Life USA, kind of a Boy Scouts alternative. And Thursday is our World Concern Radiothon. We're going to shift our focus to the, the drought and famine in Somalia. So I hope you'll be with us all week long. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering a portion of today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of today's program and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.